city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Type in the word terrorist, and these are just a few of the headlines you'll find over the past week. Man arrested for terrorism after sending threatening email to news station. I'm a journalist, so why did I end up on an FBI terrorist watch list? Two New York City women caught in 2015 terrorism plot plead guilty. But what exactly counts as terrorism? On today's show, we'll take a look at political violence, what causes it, who does it, and what we can do about it. Welcome to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show. Our guest today is Dr. John Horgan, a professor of psychology at Georgia State University. His research into terrorist behavior has led to more than 70 research papers on terrorism and political violence. He has spoken face-to-face with many former members of violent extremist organizations in an effort to understand why and how people become immersed in and escape from such extremism. Welcome to the show, Dr. Horgan. Thank you so much for having me. What exactly is political violence? Uh, Political violence, uh, in a nutshell, is violence um, that is developed or conducted for political reasons. So as opposed to, let's say, violence that is personal in nature or instrumental in terms of violence associated with, let's say, an assault or a robbery, the political violence is about trying to change something in the society, whether it is something about our social setting or a political cause or about trying to fight for the rights of the oppressed, but it's about something ideological, something bigger, broader than just one person. So how does terrorism fit into this kind of big umbrella of political violence? Well, I guess terrorism would be a kind of political violence. So uh, there are lots of different kinds of political violence from you know wars, civil wars, things like that. But terrorism is a very particular kind of political violence. Um, it's something we, we normally associate with these sort of clandestine uh, non-state groups, although states can engage in terrorist activity as well. And terrorism, it's one of those really, really contentious terms. I think everyone has an opinion about what terrorism is, but for me, terrorism is the use or the threat of use of violence to achieve some social, political, religious, or or other ideological cause. So you mentioned it's kind of a contentious topic, and I've heard some people say, well, terrorism is in the eye of the beholder. Is there some truth to that, do you think? Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, And at the same time, uh, terrorism is one of these words that I think if we could get rid of it, I think we'd be better off. Uh, But, you know, we're stuck with it, so we we should just try to use it as consistently as possible. I think a large part of the dissatisfaction people have is is the sense that, well, terrorism is not just in the eye of the beholder, but it's in the eye of the powerful. You know, if if they do it, it's terrorism. But if we do the same thing, then, you know, it's something else. So that would be maybe self-defense or what? What would what would somebody else call it who is in that position of power? Well, let me give an example. So if you look at the history of terrorism throughout the ages, uh, states and governments will often engage in activity that is just as 
morally, ethically, and legally reprehensible as that which terrorists themselves engage in. But the assumption is that, well, if, you know, if, if they do it, it's terrorism, but if we do it, well, we're, we're, we're simply fighting terrorism or we're doing something else. Terrorism is one of those labels, I think, that if, you, if I can convince you to use the word terrorist or the label terrorist and, and apply it to a particular group, then in a way, I've kind of brought you around to my way of thinking about what this group is and their, their legitimacy or lack thereof. It's always a derogatory term. Oh, completely. For sure. Absolutely it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you consider mass shootings to be a form of domestic terrorism? Uh, they can be. So this, that's a great example. Thank you for bringing it up. It's one of those issues. We are right now in the midst of an epidemic of mass shootings. And, and one of the common responses you'll see people say afterwards is, why don't we call it what it is once and for all? Uh, let's call it, you know, terrorism is terrorism is terrorism. Some mass shootings can be terrorism, but not all. Again, I keep telling people that if there is no ideological basis to what is being conducted, it isn't terrorism. Now, we might feel terrified. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But just because you feel terrified of a particular attacker or event or issue that's unfolding, it doesn't necessarily make it terrorism. There has to be some aspiration to, to change the social order in order for it to be terrorism. It's a strange place I think we're in as a country right now, because whenever I tell people that, you know, unless there is a political dimension to it, it isn't necessarily terrorism. It's almost some people feel as if I'm, I'm somehow lessening the seriousness of the mass shooting. I'm simply saying that there's an important distinction, a categorical distinction to be made here, and it's one we really shouldn't lose sight of. So in a nutshell, some mass shootings can be terrorism, but not all of them. So give me an example of one that you would consider to be a terrorist act. There is some uh, discrepancy right now around the case of uh, Stephen Paddock, the, uh, the Las Vegas uh, shooter from two years ago. His attack killed uh, dozens and dozens of people, injured hundreds more. You might remember him. He was the shooter who shot at a group of concert goers um, from the Mandalay Bay Hotel. And on the surface, it looked, for all intents and purposes, just like a terrorist attack, an indiscriminate opening of fire on innocent bystanders. That is the, a typical modus operandi for terrorist groups around the world. However, there wasn't a political manifesto or some broader ideological aspiration at play here. But within the terrorism community, there has been a lot of disagreement around whether or not that was a terrorist attack. In my opinion, it wasn't. How does that compare to like the El Paso shooting? where you have somebody who has this manifesto and talks about a Hispanic invasion and those kind of things. Is that an example that you would consider to be a terrorist activity? I consider that terrorism, absolutely, yes. So again, it, it has all the hallmarks of a classic textbook act of terrorism. It's targeting a particular group for immediate violence, and it's also symbolic in the sense that it's about sending a message of fear towards uh, that group at large. So would, would all hate crimes virtually fall into this category then? Because there seems to be some ideological motive behind all hate crimes, pretty much. Exactly, yes. And there, there's enormous overlap between what we currently think of as hate crimes and, and domestic terrorism. There's, there's a lot of confusion, I think, at multiple levels around how we distinguish these things. But yeah, there's, there's more they have in common than not, for sure. 
Yeah, these really are slippery terms. I know um, some of the research I've done talks about the fact that one of the things about hate crimes, for example, that really sets them apart is that the intent and the impact isn't just to terrorize a person or a small group that is actually physically violated, but it really does send a message to a whole community or a whole group to terrorize them as well. That's a key element of what I consider to be terrorism. It is fundamentally about psychological warfare, for sure. It is about saying to a broader group, look, this can happen to you at a time and place of my choosing as the attacker, and you won't know when, you won't know where, but I will not allow you to feel safe. That is classic terrorism. What first sparked your interest in terrorism? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) I kind of fell into it by accident. You know, I'm Irish. And so, uh, you know, people tend to assume that I was somehow affected by the troubles in Northern Ireland and and nothing could be further from the truth. I I grew up in the south of Ireland. And even though Ireland is a tiny, tiny country, I I was hundreds of miles away from terrorism there. Uh, It wasn't until I got to college and took a, a couple of classes in psychology that I first started to develop an interest in this. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but one of my then professors was a, a very, very well-known terrorism expert, super smart professor, but he, would, he had this tremendous habit of just showing up really late and disorganized to all the classes. And so what would he do? Every single concept in psychology that he tried to teach us about, he would illustrate it using a terrorist example. You know, I think most of my classmates were kind of irritated because it was turning into a psychology of terrorism class rather than a psychology class. But I was, I was hooked. I mean, I was just fascinated to, to be exposed to the idea that you don't necessarily have to be crazy or, or psychologically disturbed in some way to engage in extreme activity. And I remember thinking about that notion for the first time, and I was, I was just completely dumbfounded by it. I always assumed, you know, growing up that someone who engages in acts of extreme violence must be suffering from some kind of affliction or some kind of psychological disorder. And I learned slowly but surely that that wasn't the case. So that was what really sparked my interest in it. I had no real sense of who does terrorism research or how one actually does it, but the idea um, that extreme behavior can develop from fairly mundane origins just blew me away. I mean, I was, I was obsessed with that idea. So let's talk about some of those mundane origins. What are the major reasons why people do turn to terrorism? Oh, lots of reasons. I mean, it depends on who you talk to. It depends on... Um, so, I mean, I've, I've interviewed uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of terrorists over the years. It, it can also depend on what stage in the radicalization process that person is. There's a very different kind of answer you'll get from someone who is currently active in a terrorist organization versus someone who, let's say, is disillusioned and disaffected and has left terrorism behind. If I was to boil it down to one reason, and I can, I can happily unpack this, the one thing that I think all terrorists share in common is the belief that they have been chosen to help make the world a better place whether that is through addressing some kind of injustice, whether they feel that they are standing up for the rights of the oppressed, or whether they are seeking a glory through martyrdom or whatever. But the the common denominator that that all would-be terrorists share is the belief that they are doing something noble and just and righteous 
in the pursuit of a, a brighter future. You know, I can certainly see how someone would develop that belief in the middle of it, but how does the ball get rolling? How do people get, I guess, introduced to these ideas? Again, there are multiple pathways. So some people seek it out. So there's a common narrative in studies of terrorism is that, well, people first get exposed to certain ideas and then they develop a curiosity about them. And then it's this sort of, you know, one step leading to another. And then they eventually want to take it further and explore what involvement in terrorism might actually be. I think that's a very beguiling narrative. It seems to make sense on the surface, but the reality is much, much more messy. I see lots of cases of people who get involved in terrorism because a sibling is getting involved. They get involved because they are absolutely bored out of their minds and they, they decide that they want to achieve something greater than they think they can ever achieve on their own by, by going off and joining some uh, grand adventure or participating in some fantasy. Excitement, adventure, camaraderie, these are all the kind of the, the, the lower level motivations that really pull people into terrorism. If you sit with someone who has been involved in terrorism and ask him or her about why they became involved, in my experience, you get a fairly predictable set of answers. The beginning of most of those accounts tends to sort of sound a little bit like this. It's more, you know, somebody had to do something. I saw this injustice. I felt that I really needed to be the one to go out and do something about it. They'll give you a sense that they had no other choice but to do this. It's only when you, you sort of gently uh, probe that account and sort of ever so slightly take it apart, that's when you get a sense of, of the various different push and pull factors. So we have tried for years and years and years and years to boil it down to one specific issue, but the reality is it's a, there's a sort of a list of things that come together in terms of understanding why people get involved in it. So one of the things that's interesting to me is you're saying that a lot of individuals you've talked to you say, this is kind of the only thing I could do. I had to do something. Yeah. Is that because the person sees their options as limited? Well, that's a great question. That's how they want to present it. I mean, they will present it to you as, as look, I was absolutely outraged about what was going on, or I was really fed up with this government policy. They will have you believe that the only way to achieve their objectives is to engage in violence. Now, whether they come to sort of embrace that view on their own or there's a recruiter that's pulling their strings, that's not entirely clear. I mean, that, that can vary from person to person. There's an urgency about what they do. They feel compelled to act on their beliefs. Is there anything about any certain religions that make these followers especially prone to terrorism? No, not really. Um, again, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, especially when we look at groups that are associated with religion, you know, we tend to assume that religion drives this, but uh, really uh, it's not the case at all. Even in cases of so-called religiously motivated terrorists, if you take, you know, your sort of your standard Al-Qaeda or ISIS recruit, you'll find a tremendous amount of variation. You will get the true believers, the people who will look to a religious text and say, well, well, look, it says here in black and white that you know, this is what we need to do. But those tend to be the exceptions. Uh, the true believers, the, the, the Osama bin Ladens, these are very, very, very rare indeed. Your average uh, run-of-the-mill terrorists you know, might have a few talking points, might be able to parrot some verses from the, uh, the Quran, for example, but they're not necessarily very well-versed. 
there seems to be so much variability in the people who join terrorist organizations. How do you do this research? <laughs> With great difficulty. <laughs> that. The variation is overwhelming. And one of the, the things that really struck me, you know, as a researcher, you know, coming up through the ranks, trying to find my way here was that that variation, uh, you would find it even within specific groups. Back when I was a graduate student in Ireland and I was looking at groups like the IRA, I found that depending on who you talk to in the movement, you might get a very, very different sort of account about that person's pathway into the group. Uh, I would, you know, speak to one man and he would say, well, look, you know, this is sort of a big family tradition. My uncle was in the IRA and he kind of came to me when I was a teenager and said, hey, you know, do you want to do something fun? Whereas somebody else who, who might have grown up Irish but hundreds of miles away was sort of, you know, very much struck by the allure, this romantic notion of going off and fighting in some sort of uh, a hedgerow battle. Different people from very different sorts of circumstances, but compelled by this narrative to go do something. So, I guess to, to try to make a very long story short here, you find that variation not just across different sorts of groups, like you're you know, comparing the IRA to Al-Qaeda or ISIS or something like that, but you find that variation even within specific groups. And it really is, a, it's both astonishing and it's also, I think, um, super challenging as a researcher because we, we spend our days and nights trying to find meaningful patterns and profiles here, but they're very, very elusive. So what about individuals? Are there certain characteristics or is there a profile of the type of person who is most likely to become a terrorist? I would say yes and no. So there isn't a profile in the sense that many people who fans of the wonderful TV shows, Criminal Minds and, and whatnot would think of a sort of a, an offender profile. It doesn't really work like that in, in the terrorism world. I can say, however, that there are similarities. I mean, they tend to be young. Uh, the messages that, that they are uh, recruited with resonate with them in a very profound sort of way. They're diverse, but they do tend to be mostly men in their 20s or early 30s. In terms of their process of, of getting involved in terrorism and, and what that profile looks like, they tend to be fueled by outrage uh, you know, against some group or government or set of policies or something like that. Uh, like I said earlier, I mean, they believe or they are led to believe that violence is the only way to achieve their objectives. One of the big, big differences between the person who decides to become a terrorist versus, let's say, the person who is someone who holds radical views, which is perfectly normal, is that the terrorist is very action-oriented. One of the things we find in studies of the psychology of the terrorist is that there's far more people who hold radical beliefs than will ever become involved in terrorism. The terrorist is someone who is, they're fed up just talking about something. They come to believe that action is the only answer here and that they themselves, um, you know, play an essential role in bringing about that change. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this fascinating conversation with Dr. John Horgan. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and you're listening to Thread of Evidence. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. 
Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Welcome back to Third of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and our guest today, Dr. Horgan, has interviewed many terrorists, and I was really curious as to how you get an interview with a terrorist. Believe it or not, it can be done. And this is something that kind of surprised me as, as a researcher starting out. I thought, well, that just seems insane. And more to the point, why on earth would, would, as a researcher, why would you want to potentially put yourself in harm's way and, and, and reach out to someone? I found out very early on as a student that terrorist groups, believe it or not, they do want to talk and that they do have means and ways in which, uh, as a researcher, you can make inquiries about doing a potential interview. Lots and lots and lots of pitfalls here. I mean, of course, you know, we have to be super careful about the, the ethics and, and, and just the, the legality of thinking about an interview. And it's imperative that, you know, a researcher isn't used as some sort of um, propaganda platform for terrorist groups. I mean, I have seen that happen. Most groups will allow researchers, in a way, it's almost like a thinking about giving access to a journalist. Um, they will allow some kind of access. They will allow people from their organization to be interviewed. So approaches can be made. Sometimes it's very time consuming. It's taken me as long as five years to track down individual terrorists for interviews, but they they can be set up and with a lot of uh, careful planning and preparation, they, uh, they can happen. So what is it like when you actually sit down with someone? What kind of questions do you ask? Again, it depends. I've been doing this for a very long time. I remember when I started out, it was very, <laughs> very, very nerve-wracking. The first series of interviews I did with terrorists in Ireland and Northern Ireland, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I mean, I thought I was prepared. I thought I was a good interviewer, but it was pretty clear to me that, that these guys were just running rings around me and they were feeding me nothing more than propaganda. I mean, I, I was interested in, in what I would today refer to as uh, pathway issues. You know, how did you become involved? Tell me about the ways in which you became involved in this movement. At the time, I mean, I wasn't even asking the right questions. I would ask very naive questions like, um, tell me why did you become involved in this? And that is, that is one of the worst questions you can ask a terrorist because whatever answer you get typically is a reflection of some sort of propaganda. You know, the, all of the answers I would get to the why question is things like, well, you need to open your eyes. Uh, what's going on around you? And, and someone needs to stand up and someone needs to make a difference and blah, 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 blah. What is the right question? The right question to start with is, can you tell me how you became involved? Because that starts to open up the story of the recruiter and the pathways and the little steps that people take about being at the right place at the right time and being emotionally or psychologically open to uh, considering this uh, course of action. Who comes to mind when you think of the most remarkable story you've heard 
from somebody that you've interviewed? Gosh, there are lots. One of the most interesting series of interviews I did um, a number of years ago was around the story of not so much how people get into terrorism, but how do people get out of terrorism? I didn't realize at the time, but, but just as there is a flood of people who get into terrorism, there's also a lot of people who, who find their way back into the real world. And I was really, really curious about what makes somebody turn away from terrorism. So I started to speak to terrorists from multiple different groups about how and why people decided they wanted to leave. And there was a, a, um, a remarkable common denominator among all those stories, and it had to do with disillusionment. You know, listening to people's stories about how they became disillusioned, how the, the fantasy that they were sold as a young recruit, you know, didn't match up with the, um, uh, with the reality of getting involved. Sometimes that fantasy, that bubble was burst in different sorts of ways. Uh, I went to Norway to interview an extreme right-wing bomber who talked to me about how he, he knew, you know, that it was time to get out of the movement. He was uh, taken by his recruiter one day to essentially target a, a synagogue um, because they were um, targeting uh, Jewish people, of course. He recalled to me in great detail being taken by this recruiter to this particular synagogue, and the recruiter said to him, you know, somebody should do something. You know, the recruiter was very, very careful not to, not to say, you know, I want you to do this, but he just threw it out in, in sort of a vague way. Somebody should do something. So about two or three days later, the recruit, who was very, very new at this point, was given the device, given an improvised explosive device, bomb and was given instructions about taking the tram or the bus or whatever it was and stopping at a particular stop and dropping it off at the front door of the synagogue. The bomber talked to me about what it was. I asked him, so, so I said, you know, how does it feel like 24 hours before you, you go on a bombing operation? What goes through your mind? And he described being very, very nervous, nervous about being caught, nervous about getting to the right target. And he then talked me through it step by step. So he left his home, the bomb is in his backpack, uh, he gets on the tram, uh, but he only realizes about 10 minutes later that the tram is going in the wrong direction. He was doing reconnaissance on the target in a car. So time is going on, 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes later, and this guy has literally a ticking bomb in his backpack. And he said, I remember looking out the window and thinking, oh, that kind of looks like a synagogue. And it, in fact, it was a mosque. So he got off, planted the bomb outside the mosque and ran away. The bomb exploded and uh, nobody knew why Norway's Muslims were, were suddenly being attacked or by whom. And it all was the result of this uh, neo-Nazi confusing a synagogue and a mosque. And I think that was his, uh, his wake-up moment when he realized that he wasn't going, he didn't really have a bright future in terms of being a very effective terrorist. He was obviously apprehended and uh, uh, described being in prison as the experience that saved his life. He talked about, you know, getting away from the group and, and, and coming to his senses and uh, who knows, but very often it's not until people actually get involved in terrorist activity that they realize that they're not necessarily all cut out for it, fortunately. You know, I work a lot in prisons and have interviewed many gang members. And I know that getting into a gang is much easier than getting out of it. And oftentimes people will talk about being threatened or their family being threatened. And I wonder if something similar happens in some terrorist organizations, because you have somebody who may have all this secret information, you know, know where all these meetings are, and now they're deciding to leave. 
I think the similarities outweigh the differences for sure. In my research, I talk about two different kinds of disengagement from terrorism. I talk about voluntary disengagement, where someone just, you know, puts down their tools and walks away, and involuntary disengagement, which is about being apprehended and things like that. The similarities between gangs and terrorist organizations are absolutely remarkable. And and the reason I did that research on, on disengagement was because I thought there's an interesting story to be told here about you know, how the fantasy and the reality of being involved are two very, very different things. And maybe, you know, we can make known some of those stories about, about just how unglamorous terrorism actually is and how potentially traumatic it can be for uh, people who do terrorist acts. Uh, maybe we might somehow de-glamorize it and, and sort of, you know, lessen the mystique around it. It's such a common, you know, denominator, a common draw for potential recruits. I think, you know, so many of them, have, they've, they have this Hollywoodized version of what it means to be in a terrorist group. And, it, and, and the reality is very, 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 very different. And they're not all cut out for it. So in the interviews you've done, as an estimate, what percentage would you say voluntarily disengaged and what percentage kind of involuntary disengaged through capture? arrest? Oh, gosh, that's very hard to answer that. Um, I would love for it to be so clear cut. Uh, Unfortunately, it isn't. So a a lot of terrorists that I've met who have served very lengthy prison sentences, they would say, well, well, I left, I got out. And the reality is, well, you didn't get out, you were caught. But they would say things like, well, well, sure, I was caught. But when I was in prison, that's when I decided I wanted to leave, I wanted to walk away, you know, myself. So, so it's often some sort of combination of the two. There are very, very, very few cases of people who decide to voluntarily walk away. One of the first terrorists I ever interviewed was a a killer for the Irish Republican Army uh, who became disillusioned after he had killed some people and talked about leaving, talked about wanting to get away. And, And I remember spending a lot of time sitting down with him, asking him about, well, how is it that you were able to do that? You know, why does a group just decide that you can leave? And from his perspective, you know, he had already proven his bona fides. He had already gotten a lot of blood on his hands. And his view was that he was getting burned out and that the, the organization stood a better chance of perhaps winning him back later by just letting him go take a break. What are the misconceptions that you hear most often about terrorists? There are so many. I don't even know where to begin. One thing you've talked about already, kind of at length, is just the diversity of the motives for people getting involved in this. And I think that would be surprising because certainly a lot of the media that we see, it almost seems like there's almost like a caricature of a terrorist and they're all the same. You know, whenever I talk about terrorism, um, especially publicly, um, people will say, oh my gosh, you know, listen to the academic, making it unnecessarily complicated. And trust me, you know, we're, we're doing our very best to not make it complicated. The diversity is, is almost overwhelming, for sure. So, you know, it, it's a diverse activity in the sense that there's lots of different factors that kind of feed it. The motivation question, you know, the question you asked me at the very beginning, you know, why do people do it? It's not easy to answer, even if you are sitting down with a terrorist face-to-face and he or she is, is a willing and cooperative interviewee. And the reason for that is that motivation changes the more time you spend in one of these terrorist groups. I've seen lots of cases of people who, let's say, get involved, not because they're religious, not because they're necessarily political, 
but because they're running away from a life of boredom. They're trying to find something through which they can feel significant. They think that this cause or this movement is the answer to their prayers. They don't necessarily start off political or ideological, but the more time you spend in a group, the more time you walk the walk, you will eventually learn to talk the talk. You will eventually acquire the ideological savvy to justify to yourself or to others why it is that you do what you do. So someone you know, might initially get involved for some pretty low-level, tawdry reasons. You know, hey, I was bored, or, or I just wanted to go kill people. And after a while, they'll acquire the ideology. And so as an interviewer, you are obviously talking to this person well after the fact, and they will almost always frame their initial decision-making in terms of that ideology. So that's the, that's the really hard part of doing these interviews. You, you have to... We have to allow people to talk, of course, and to give them the space to talk. But the the challenge is in sort of wading through all of that propaganda and ideology to try to get the the real complexity about what might be going on here. That's so interesting. You know, I've I've also spoken with numerous kind of hate group dropouts who've been in prison for various reasons. And that is one of the things that has struck me time and time again, is that when I've talked to individuals who've left the groups... I so often hear that really rage or anger and a a need for belonging were so often, it seemed to me, the driving motivators for getting involved in a group. And I never got the sense a lot of times at the beginning that the ideology really was a factor or was a big factor at all. Yeah, interestingly, more often than not, it isn't the driving factor. And yet, I mean, you know, to to sort of come full circle on your question, you know, one of the greatest myths, there is no substitute to sitting down and talking to people who've been involved in terrorism. And I can understand, you know, that that even saying that might rub people up the wrong way because it might it might inadvertently give the impression that we're somehow sympathizing with them. And of course, it's it's not the case at all. We're just trying to figure out what the sequence of events is here. And so something that in very often in popular press or media might be framed as ideology, I would be willing to bet you that it is typically, uh, more often than not, some combination of adventure, excitement, camaraderie, wanting to belong, a sense of duty, identity. It's distorted or convenient religious reasons. It's outraged. It's what they perceive as altruism. It's disillusionment, it's humiliation, revenge, conformity, opportunities, and very often it's just chance. Being at the right place at the right time, getting access to the right kind of opportunity to allow you to get further into this. Now, you know there are going to be people listening to us today and and thinking, and understandably so, you know, I would never do this. There's nothing anybody could ever say to me that would point me in that direction or pull me along that path. So are there individual predispositions to getting involved in these kinds of activities? The short answer is I suspect there are, but the research hasn't found them yet. We can't reduce the process to some sort of crude profile. We are trying to map the process as best we possibly can. It is a gradual process. We know that for sure. People do not become terrorists overnight. So this is another myth that you'll often see touted in the media that someone just converted in a two or three night period or a two or three week period. It doesn't happen like that. It's, it's a labyrinthine experience where people will, they might feel outraged. I mean, I, I keep telling people, you know, my students especially, 
it is normal to have radical thoughts. It is perfectly normal to be outraged about the injustice that we see all around us in our communities, in, in countries affected by conflict and war. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are at risk of becoming a terrorist. So it might be one of those sets of factors that is um, necessary but not sufficient. What is the link there? Because I would say not only is it normal, but we want people to be politically engaged and outraged by injustices and, you know, activists and trying to fix the wrongs of the world. So where does that leap occur from, okay, here's something that's wrong. I want to do something about this. How does that translate into violence is the only solution? The short answer is we don't know. We do know, however, that we've probably gotten the the focus of the research wrong for a very long time. So for the past 30, 40 years, we've really been uh, focused on on trying to figure out the individual terrorists. You know, what is it about him or her? What makes them different? What makes them special? Is there a personality profile? Is there some kind of other set of things that sets them apart from you or I? I think one of the things we have really missed in that exclusive sort of blinkered focus on the terrorist is the role of other people in that network. We have almost completely ignored the role of recruiters in all of this, you know, we, and, and especially over the last few years where we've seen the, the rise of the so-called lone wolf terrorist. Let me tell you, from really paying attention to some of these cases, genuine lone wolves are exceptionally rare. The lone wolf diagnosis that you'll often see attributed to attackers in the media has a very, very unstable uh, half-life. You just have to wait four or five weeks and then you'll find that, whoa, actually here, this, somebody else was in this person's network. Or there was someone at the end of a, a social media uh, interaction pulling that person along and saying, hey, I might be the person that helps you get to where you want to be. Are there things we can do to prevent individuals from becoming terrorists? I think that's a pretty tall order right now, I and mean, we're still trying to figure out what the process looks like. I think there's certainly a lot that we can do to de-glamorize it. I think we can certainly do a lot to try to stem the flow of recruits. I mean, counterterrorism is one of those activities that involves doing lots of different things at lots of different levels, at lots of different stages as well. Prevention is a very, very tall order. Uh, and I think some of that has to do with, you know, politically backing ourselves into a corner. We're, we're never going to defeat terrorism. I mean, I think the, the language of defeating it is nonsense. I hope your listeners don't think that I'm trying to scare anyone. That is absolutely the opposite of what I'm trying to do. But this talk of defeating terrorism is, is just going to get us nowhere. Um, we can't defeat terrorism because terrorism is a strategy. It's a strategy used by different kinds of groups at different kinds of times uh, for different sorts of purposes. We can do a lot more to limit the appeal for young people to become involved in terrorism. And I think that's why it's so critical to, as unpalatable as it might seem, we do need to listen to the stories of disillusioned former terrorists who can really um, you know, unveil the curtain of what the reality of life is like uh, in some of these places. Last year, I went to Somalia to interview members of a, uh, an Al-Qaeda offshoot, or an ISIS offshoot, I beg your pardon. And, uh, you know, I asked them to describe, you know, what life in this movement was like. And what they painted for me was a picture of utter brutality. 
not just brutality against the enemies of this group, but brutality against, you know, new recruits. They would be routinely beaten. They would be subject to all kinds of harsh punishments if they were seen to be wavering in their faith, in their commitment in any way, shape or form. Those are the kinds of stories we need to tell to really just take the shine off of, uh, off of these groups. Recruiters will do whatever it takes to pull you into these groups, but I promise you they will, they will try to lure you in with the promise of a very welcoming place into which you will fit and you'll have the, the, you know, all kinds of riches laid out for you. Well, let's tackle that. That's one tangible thing I think we can do to de-glamorize involvement in terrorism. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a minute to finish up our really, really interesting conversation about political violence and the psychology of terrorism. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and you're listening to Thread of Evidence. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we are talking with Dr. John Horgan about political violence and his interviews with a number of terrorists. There's been a lot of talk in the media lately about domestic terrorism. And how do you think that compares to international terrorism? I think there are far more similarities uh, than there are differences now in 2019. I think to a couple of different issues here. I mean, we, we don't have a domestic terrorism statute, which I, th- I think that may be about to change. I would like to see that change. I think there is definitely a false dichotomy between domestic and international terrorism because the kinds of domestic terrorism we're seeing on the rise now here at home, uh, extreme right-wing sentiment, that is international by nature. It's almost redundant to call it international terrorism because terrorism by its nature is international. There are like-minded groups who are now occupying a global platform to get more followers, to fight for legitimacy. And the the boundaries between domestic and international groups are, you know, especially with the advent and and development of, of new technologies, the internet, social media, those are really blurry. So we talked a little bit about counterterrorism activities. What are those? Oh, gosh. Well, counterterrorism activity can involve everything from developing legislation to you know, investigations to the kinds of activities that you know, we see in TV and movies, uh, hunting down terrorists and, and capturing or killing them can involve a wide variety of different activities. Over the past decade, there's been a more of an emphasis on trying to I guess, acknowledge the fact that, to, to coin a phrase, we can't kill or capture our way out of the problem. So, so thinking more along the lines of prevention and thinking creatively about what we can do to, to better prevent people becoming involved. And this is where one of, the, one of perhaps the most pervasive myths around terrorism actually comes from, the idea that, well, 
terrorism gains its power because, you know, we can't see it coming. We don't see it coming, and this is why it terrifies us so much. That is absolutely not the case. There is a very, very high percentage of terrorist acts of which there is always evidence of planning and preparation. Talk about this concept in psychology, the bystander effect. Friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, people who might see something, but they don't necessarily say something. One of the biggest discussions right now in national security circles and counterterrorism contexts has to do with figuring out how do we reduce that bystander effect? How do we make it easier for people to report suspicious activity? And are there any, I guess, suggestions so far that seem to be viable? Uh, not right now, but I would say watch this space. It is certainly worth um, noting that, you know, this, this is something we see even in cases of lone wolf terrorists. A study from a, a number of years ago in which I played a, a role showed that even in cases of, we looked at about 119 cases of lone wolf terrorists, and we found that almost three quarters of them, friends, family, co-workers were aware of what this person was about to do. Uh, but for one reason or another, they chose not to speak to the authorities. At the time, I thought that, you know, this was because of some sort of anti-police sentiment or something like that. And it turned out it wasn't really the case at all. It had more to do with fear, fear about the repercussions for uh, the person who went on to be an attacker, fear about, you know, what it meant to a family member, fear that they themselves might be implicated and so forth. So I think I think there's a very important discussion to be had about enabling better, safer, secure, perhaps anonymized ways of helping people come forward if they have information about people engaged in potentially violent acts. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, one of the things that I don't think we talk about enough is the victims of terrorism. Agreed. And I wonder if you've done any research or you're aware of any research about the psychological impact of being a victim of terrorism? I haven't. Uh, I know there is substantial research out there, but certainly not nearly enough. Um, uh, Victims tend to be both forgotten, neglected, and and completely removed from all of these discussions. Are there de-radicalization programs that are currently in place to help people who even maybe have been incarcerated to kind of formally deprogram themselves from these groups? Uh, There sure are. There's, uh, by my count, there are somewhere between 45 and 50 de-radicalization programs uh, currently operating around the world. Those are those are ones that we're, we know of. My suspicion is that there's probably about a dozen or two dozen more that are sort of in the shadows right now and are waiting to be tested. I've seen some of these de-radicalization programs firsthand. Um, I've traveled to places like the Northwest frontier province of Pakistan to look at how security forces are, are de-radicalizing members of the Pakistan Taliban there. I think that there is some interesting promise for sure. I would urge your listeners to be a little bit um, skeptical about claims to success for many of these programs. A number of years ago, I I had the um, pleasure and the very interesting opportunity to join federal law enforcement and a small number of academics to go to Saudi Arabia to look at a de-radicalization program there. And I met with former members of Al-Qaeda who were going through this program. And I found it really compelling. And I, and I thought, well, how do we know that de-radicalization programs work? And, and the answer I kept getting time and time again was, well, 
these people don't go back to terrorism when they're released and that's why we know they work. And I thought, well, okay, that sort of makes sense. But if you look at terrorist groups really closely, another really surprising finding is that the recidivism rate compared to regular ordinary crime is actually very, very, very low. And that's irrespective of whether or not someone gets involved in a de-radicalization program. So for reasons we don't quite understand, people are very slow to go back to terrorism once they are released. It might be that they are seen as damaged goods. It might be that they're seen as potential spies. But this is a, forgive me, it's a sort of complicated way of me trying to say that looking at low recidivism rates is not really a convincing argument as to why a particular DRAD program might be viewed as successful. Uh, In Somalia, um, uh, I found that a couple of programs were also pointing to low recidivism rates, but the members of Al-Shabaab that I spoke to said, well, there is no recidivism in Al-Shabaab because if you leave, your name will get put on a list. And if you try to come back, they'll chop your head off as an example to others. So, so there, is no, <laughs> there, is no, there is no recidivism in that sense. These are even people who have been captured. If they oh, yeah. get released yeah. and try to go back, they would still be killed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there, there's some promise with these programs. I, th- I think they, they, if nothing else, they are trying to think about counterterrorism in a creative and innovative way that goes beyond, you know, just killing people, just targeting people in drone strikes. And I think for that alone, they are to be applauded. I think we ought to be skeptical around these sort of unfettered uh, claims for success. I mean, you know, as a the social scientist in me says, okay, I'm really curious about this, but where's the evidence that these things actually work? But they are, they are a new direction for some of these efforts, for sure. And in the efforts that you're familiar with, is the goal to change the thinking or is it to focus on the behavior? That's a super question. And I'm going to give you such a typical academic answer. It depends. Some of them are very focused on addressing the ideology. So the program in Saudi Arabia, for example, is all about trying to undo the thinking process that they assume characterizes Al-Qaeda recruits, for example. Now, that might be a fair assumption because it's like, well, okay, if you have imprisoned terrorists, you surely want to change the way they think. And so in the case of Saudi Arabia, that involves replacing one sort of ideology with another. It assumes, however, that ideology was the reason that people got involved in the first place. It isn't necessarily the case. In the programs that I have seen with my own two eyes in places like Pakistan and Singapore and and, and others, I've seen cases where where the focus isn't really on de-radicalization per se, you know, this idea of reprogramming someone, but really more on, on figuring out how do we just get someone to stay disengaged? You know, what do we need to make sure that this person can somehow fit back into the community, can somehow be released with a modicum of, of certainty that they're not going to go back? And more importantly, how can the community feel safe with this person in their midst? The Pakistani efforts right now, and they, they are to be applauded, um, really are all about trying to figure out the different kinds of ways in which rehabilitation might work for different people. So for some, it is something as basic as giving them a trade, giving them a job, making sure that they are accountable to some some sort of, you know, master-apprentice relationship from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. every night so that they can't be tempted to go back to their old friends, whatever it might be. So, so I think these programs have been around for about 
13, 14 years right now. They're still trying to find their feet in terms of figuring out what works and why it works. I and many others are, are looking at them very, very carefully to see what we might be able to do. So what is the distinction you're making between de-radicalization and disengagement? Two different but related processes. So um, when I first started interviewing terrorists, uh, these were people who had disengaged. In, and, and by that, I mean, they left terrorism behind. They were no longer involved in terrorism. One of the first real terrorists I met, you know, showed up about 10 minutes late for the interview. And he said, I'm really, really sorry. I had to bring my kids to school and, and, and I got to get back to run some errands. But hey, let's, let's talk. He clearly was someone who was disengaged. And I realized within about five minutes of talking to him that he wasn't necessarily de-radicalized. He was still very much supportive of the movement. He was still very much willing to say that what he had done in killing people was morally legitimate and legally and ethically justifiable. So here was someone who was disengaged but not de-radicalized. Before I started that research, I sort of naively thought, well, well, shoot, if you leave terrorism behind, if you walk away from it, surely that either stems from or results in some sort of, you know, change of heart. And, and it doesn't necessarily look like that. You can have people who get out of terrorism and they might be disillusioned. They might be fed up. They might think, oh, I've, I've made a terrible choice here and this is, and I need to atone for what I have done somehow. But you also have people who get out and will talk your ear off about how it was the best thing they've ever done and that they they feel no remorse whatsoever. So what do you think is the takeaway practically from some of the research that you've done? (laughs) (laughs) It's an easy question. I think the the takeaway is don't get into terrorism research if you want easy answers. <laughs> the short answer is I don't know. And, and, and this is not the first time I've said I don't know uh, on your show today. And I feel bad for your listeners because, um, you know, we are, we're working this problem really, really hard. And, and the more we study it, the more we look at it, the more we really try to get to grips with it, the more we're kind of wrestling with it. In my role as an academic, I mean, I try to demystify terrorism. I teach courses uh, here at Georgia State University on the psychology of terrorism. I run a lab where I have graduate students who are working towards their PhD. So my, my role, my responsibility is to try to educate people about what terrorism is and what it isn't and to really sort of strip away all the politics and strip away all of the, the preconceived ideas we have about this horrible phenomenon. I suppose the takeaway, if you would allow me to sort of distill all of this to just one lesson is, look, you know, we all have our own opinions about what terrorism is and, and what causes it and who does it and all the rest of it. I would simply say, be a critical reader, you know, be skeptical about everything you read, be skeptical about people like me. I mean, I'm an academic. I pride myself on doing scientific research, but, you know, you can ask about the kinds of evidence that I collect. Um, There's so much that is written about terrorism that I promise you is not based on any kind of reality whatsoever. Interesting. The other thing that kind of comes to mind for me, and I want to get your opinion on it, was just some of the, I guess, dispelling of the romance associated for so many people with terrorism or this idea of being a savior or a martyr or whatever, it sounds like we really need to engage in communities because it's the people who've been there, the people who are seeing these young people every day that really have the best chance of providing a more realistic picture. Unquestionably. And at the same time, though, I would say, you know, I mean, that's a hard sell because we're 
to be able to, to go out to a community and say, hey, this person has done unspeakably awful things and we're now coming to you to, to ask you to step up to somehow take this person back. I mean, that is a very, very, very tall order. And yet we see success stories from all around the world in terms of uh, restorative justice and, you know, meaningful rehabilitation that, uh, you know, it, it's a hard sell because I think it sounds like we're being soft on terrorism. And I know, I mean, there's people who are going to listen to this and think, well, who cares? I mean, who cares? Look at what they've done. Look at, look at what they've done and why on earth would we even entertain the idea of, of bringing these people back into the community? I totally get it. My argument is that if we are to seriously have discussions about preventing terrorism, we've got to really carefully think and talk about it. We have to try to somehow strip away all of the emotional baggage that, that goes with it. And that's, that is admittedly very, very hard. Well, the other part of it is there are people who've done bad things, not necessarily horrible, horrible things, who get out of prison. They have to go somewhere. Yeah. And if we can find those individuals, I talked a couple of weeks ago with an individual who was on our show who was involved in a terrorist group for a while. And he was served, served his time in prison and got out and has become a major force in talking about some of the things that you're talking about, about what the reality is. So there are individuals who maybe haven't done I guess the extreme things that are not going to be in prison for the rest of their lives, I think who could be available, I would think, to talk about some of these things with the people who would be most likely to join some of these organizations. I completely agree. You know, what, what, studying terrorism all these years, I, I think I've become a really cynical person as a result. But a few years ago when I was in Pakistan, I had the extraordinary opportunity to meet with a 14-year-old kid who was kidnapped, recruited, beaten by the Pakistan Taliban. And one day he was given a suicide vest to put on. And he was driven to a checkpoint and he was told, you need to walk up there, you need to pull this trigger and and kill the enemy. The extraordinary courage from this young kid, he walked up there and he said to the security guards, he said, turning around to look at his, uh, his recruiters, he said, those two guys there, those two men have told me to come here and press this button. And he, he changed his mind at the last minute. And that young kid has become a, a beacon for hope for other young kids in that region of Pakistan that are just being preyed upon by terrorist recruiters day and night. So I think the more cases of disillusioned former terrorists that we can bring to life to tell their stories, uh, the better we'll all be. That is a perfect place for us to end um, on somewhat of a beacon of hope and what is really a complicated, complicated subject. I want to thank you so much for your time and your wisdom on the show. How can people get a hold of you if they want to ask you for their questions or get you to speak or whatever? They can feel free to email me. Uh, my email address is jhorgan, that's J-H-O-R-G-A-N, Horgan at GSU, for Georgia State University, dot E-D-U. And they can also follow me on uh, or make contact with me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Dr. John Horgan. And we'll put all the information up on the website. Thank you so much again for your time. And thank you for joining us today on Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.